You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Well, here we are in the new year, and we're talking about uh, some people in Louisiana, just uh, kind of worth knowing about. Uh, The current issue of um, Louisiana Life, they do an annual section called Louisianians of the Year, where they usually feature like six to eight people who just have like interesting stories to tell. And these are not like the people, you know, you think like, you know, the the big name highfalutin people, but just people who are doing everyday things, but who are worthy of just some recognition in the state context. The person who heads this project is the managing editor of uh, of Louisiana Life, uh, Melanie Warner Spencer. Hey, Melanie. Hi, Errol. Thanks for having me today. Uh, yep. Thank you for coming, um, Melanie. We've pointed out with this appearance becomes the first person to be on the show twice. Uh, she was on about six months ago because they also do a, a new section of Louisiana Life called La Nouvelle Louisiane, uh, where they highlight new things and businesses. Uh, that started in Louisiana, so we talked about that. So we want to go through the current issue and, and just talk about some people that have interesting stories to tell. You know, there's all kind of people just doing different things, uh, you know, below the limelight, but it's, I think we're talking about. One guy is named P.J. Martin. Now, what we know about this is that he is the son of a very prominent uh, bishop, bishop in, the, in, uh, in, in a black community church. It's called the Greater St. Stephen's Church is his dad. And he also is involved in the church in Atlanta. But this is the son, but he's raised in also this music and religious culture. So what did he do that was noteworthy? Well, PJ Morton, a lot of people will know from his work as the keyboardist in Maroon 5. And then he also has won some Grammys for his own work, um, the solo work that he has done in the R&B category. And Interestingly, he has talked a lot about how people are often asking him when he'll do a gospel album, and he always says no, that he's just not interested in doing it. Well, he finally did a gospel album, and he talks to us about that in his interview with us and how it really happened very organically. He had done a couple for a different project and they weren't being used, but he didn't want to see them go to waste. So he started the gospel according to PJ as the name of the album. And a lot of it was recorded after the COVID pandemic. And they, he did collaborations with around 20 other artists virtually that he may have never been able to work with if it hadn't been for the fact that they were all stuck not being able to tour. Right. And so is the album out, I mean, can people, purchase it through the usual means now or yes they can and he says that he hopes that this album provides comfort to people that uh to quote him he says there's no genre that does love hope and light like gospel music and he really is hoping that at this dark time it's something that acts as a salve to people and it also mentions that his father the bishop also has some commentary within the album 
Yes, he, uh, he talks a little bit about having conversations with his father that provided connective thematic material throughout the song transitions. Uh, and it's, it's really a tribute to the impact his father had on his life. And there's a quote from him saying, there's no genre that does love, hope, and light like gospel music. You know, okay, so that's PJ Martin and look for the gospel according to PJ. Now that's Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. Cause there's a, under the culinary listing, there's a woman named Melissa Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. Now she started in New Orleans, a restaurant with a very unlikely name, uh, the Mosquitoes Supper Club. Uh, why would you call something that? And how does it differ from most restaurants? <laughs> well, Melissa Martin is such an interesting person in general. You could really honor her for a lot of different things that she does. Uh, she's originally from Terrebonne Parish. And, um, you know, she just highlights, or I'm sorry, Chavant, and she highlights that area so extensively on her menus and in everything that she does. And the reason that her restaurant concept is a lot different than what you normally see is that she originally started as really more of a supper club and she had a space down in the French Quarter of New Orleans and it was a bit like a pop-up and she would do these elaborate chef-driven dinners in which she would talk about where the food comes from and she would talk about the recipes and how they relate to her upbringing and what she learned from the women in her family and what she learned in terms of the specific recipes themselves and how she was influenced by the region and by the fishermen themselves. And she has become this huge advocate for the fishermen and the shrimpers on the Gulf Coast and in Chavan where she grew up. And she released a, a cookbook uh, this past year called Mosquito Supper Club Cajun Recipes from Disappearing Bayou. And a lot of that is, um, or the entire thing was shot on her houseboat, which she used to have also elaborate dinners on the houseboat. And that's where the Mosquito Supper Club name came into play. Um, you know, this entire concept was based on these parties that she would have on the boat and the cooking that she would do there. And now her restaurant has definitely transitioned into more of a traditional space. However, she still has the chef's table. That's really what the restaurant was built around. And she invites people to come there and just learn about the food of her people. Yeah, this isn't the kind of place where you go and order a, a pepperoni pizza. I mean, it has a prefix menu. All right, and so this is uh, the meal for that night is determined. It's Cajun style cooking. She's obviously someone that has a, a passion for it. Um, there's this quote that, that, that you all have for in the magazine where she says, if you sit down to a bowl of gumbo, you need to understand all the elements. I want people to know where the ingredients came from and how they got there. Now you see, I'm the kind of guy, if I was eating, I'd ask that. You know, right. I'd ask the server, where did these ingredients come from? How did they get there? Most people don't do that. And most people say, huh, okay. But it's really kind of interesting to learn where all these things came from. And yes, sometimes they and don't know, but, 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 but this is obviously a place where there's real passion for the food. And you, you know, when you sit down at a table at her restaurant that 
whatever is being served that day, the reason it's being served is because that's what's fresh, that's what just came in. So you're getting probably the freshest food you could get if you didn't go catch it yourself. And imagine if the heavy emphasis on seafood, especially coming from uh, Chauvin, Southeast Louisiana, I mean, that's almost the seafood capital of the world right there. They must have some, some wonderful things from the bayou uh, there. So anyway, good for her and surviving, especially during a tough time for restaurants. Yes, um, and she has made some pivots that have really determined changes in the restaurant um, as a whole. So it, it has impacted her greatly. Now you have a guy named Kevin Williams, who when I first read this, it sounds like, okay, well, he's, uh, he's an expert about business, but there's a certain angle to him in terms of where his, where his emphasis goes. Right, so Wilkins was interesting to us because he's an entrepreneur and he has this startup that helps other entrepreneurs and other entities grow their businesses, but Unlike some startups, you know, it's not just about funding, it's about helping these entities create a sustainable culture so that not only are they able to grow, but they're able to thrive and retain people and keep their employees happy and help them be successful. And what struck us is they do have a lot of clients that are in the profit sector, for-profit sector. They work with a ton of not-for-profits they work with AA World Services, so Alcoholics Anonymous World Services. They work with a lot of creative entities such as the Alliance for Louisiana Filmmakers, the Arts Council of New Orleans, um, you know, Cafe Reconcile, which is here locally in New Orleans, um, CASA, they, they just do a lot of work with very worthwhile entities like Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. And they're helping these businesses and nonprofits create an atmosphere that's really based on employee needs and not just profit and growth. So giving professional business expertise to nonprofits. Yes. Okay. Um, and heaven knows there's enough, a lot of nonprofits that can use this sort of expertise. So, so I'm talking to Melanie Warren Spencer, who's the managing editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. We're talking about the uh, annual Louisianians of the Year um, issue that's out right now. And by the way, if you're interested in subscribing to the magazine, uh, you can call 504-828-1380, 504-828-1380, uh, one year subscription. Now six issues per year is $10. And if you're lucky, probably the person to answer the phone will be named Jessica. So tell Jessica hello. So anyway, 504-828-1380. Um, this next person that I really find really interesting, a guy named Herman Fuselay. Now he's out of, um, I think he lives in Opelousas now. And he's become real interested in Louisiana culture, particularly Zydeco. And tell us his story, Melanie. Fuselay struck us because he is a champion of Zydeco and um, he has been working, well, he was working for a long time as a sports writer for the Tuscaloosa News and he traveled and covered Alabama sports, but missing his years in radio, he ended up going back to radio and really zeroing in on Zydeco music. And he 
eventually came back to Opelousas and he kept broadcasting his show is called Bayou Boogie um, or his former show in Tuscaloosa, but he continues to broadcast to this day on Zydeco Stomp, which is on KRVS in Lafayette. And it's every day, noon to three. And this work that he does, it really does take him nationwide. It's not just Opelousas and it's not just people doing Zydeco here locally. And he also works as a St. Landry Parish Tourist Commissioner Executive Director. And he's promoting the parish which birthed Zydeco and Swamp Pop, but he's working to develop a musical heritage trail throughout St. Landry and the surrounding parishes to celebrate and um, you know, really zero in on this culture and this music that is steeped here in Louisiana. Right. Is that brief? Okay, so uh, while he was in Alabama, working at the University of Alabama, and he started developing this um, Zydeco show and actually played it what, in, the, in the University of Alabama on the radio station there. Yeah, it, it sounds like they still do or something. Um, I hope they do. I, I just got this image of Nick Saban, you know, getting up in the morning and turning on the radio and like hearing Zydeco from Louisiana and that like it's, it's our way of haunting him all year round. What does Zydeco sound so? In fact, it's just played like full blast, okay, all day uh, on, on Zydeco. I think this is interesting because Zydeco is sort of, it's not at its peak right now. It's, uh, uh, mm -hmm. it's a dying form of music. And so, uh, well, I guess the music exists, but with this, you were over or the nightclubs. There used to be a big Zydeco scene around the, the Opelousas area. So if somebody becomes a champion of Zydeco and can bring it back, that's really a good thing. That's a good thing that he's doing. Well, um, and that's why we just loved him for our culture honoree. He is doing everything he can to preserve this part of the culture and of the history of music. Right. And if uh, and you have in the Lafayette area, okay, so his show comes on at three o'clock on Saturdays on KRVS in Lafayette. Uh, if you don't know what the frequency is, we don't either, but you can go to the website, the KRVS website, and look it up and hear some Zydeco and, and try to um, promote it. And um, if people don't know what Zydeco is, that Zydeco developed really from, uh, from Cajun. The two kind of grew up together in the same neighborhood. And it was a, um, a black variation, a black community of, uh, of the Cajun music. So a lot of it's in French. Uh, and so it's really a fascinating form of music. All right, a guy with a really interesting story here in, in, in Shreveport, a guy named Bob Thames. And he's done some good work from selling booze. Tell us about it. Uh, well, Bob Thames came to us from one of our freelancers up in Shreveport. And normally for philanthropy, we'd look at an honoree who really was reaching across the state of Louisiana or impacting people throughout the United States or even the world. But his story charmed us so much because this is a single person who just stuck his neck out and wanted to do good for people in the bar and restaurant industry in his area. So he says that he was sitting there at work one day at the brewery and he looked over at this bottle of Old Weller bourbon 
107 antique or what's known as Weller antique um, in collector circles. And he decided to raffle it off. He just said, I'm gonna use this to do a little bit of good. And he assumed that he would raffle it off and make about 500 bucks and call it a day. But he ended up just kind of being inundated with lots and lots of um, donations from people across the area. And he said that by, he put, he posted it on social media. He put the bourbon bottle into a mostly empty box of Kleenex, snapped a quick photo and put the message on it. I'd like to raffle off this box of tissue and its content. So he was being cheeky. And by Wednesday evening, he had received hundreds of mobile payments totaling more than $2,000. And he had dozens of messages from Facebook friends and supporters that were also looking to raffle different prizes. And he ended up raising or distributing more than $27,000 when the fundraiser ended in June. All right. Let me get back to that box of Kleenex for a second. <laughs> it seems like there's more to the story right here. All right. So he opens a bottle of Kleenex and he puts a bottle of whiskey in it or something. And he says, okay, I want to auction off this box of Kleenex. Was that some kind of dodge against going around the law or was it just being being cute or, or I think or he what? was just being cute I don't really think that there's anything he needed to worry about in terms of um even selling it outright or raffling it off I think he just thought it would be funny and people would take notice of it okay because in the Shreveport area there is more of a tradition for for dry areas uh but you know probably not in Shreveport proper but anyway so anyway it's an interesting way to do things I guess uh, Sell Kleenex and stuff it with a bottle of booze and see what happens. So he's he's raised a lot of money. He's raised well over two thousand dollars. Uh, twenty-seven thousand. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So he got two thousand just okay you know, related to the bottle of Weller, and then a bunch of other people started giving him items to raffle off, and he ended up making a whole lot more. Okay, and so his, all of his efforts went to out of work bartenders and waitresses and he gave each person a hundred dollar a hundred dollars and um personal protective equipment so that when they were working they would have something or you know going out about out and about um for their necessities that they would have protection uh from the pandemic the quote from the magazine raffle benefactors range from the tattooed barkeep at a contemporary eatery to a single mom waitressing at Buffalo Wild Wings. He met them in parking lots at the brewery or outside of their home. He frequently met someone for the first time while dropping off a $100 bill. And yeah, when, the, when, when it all ended, he'd, ra he'd raise and distribute around $27,000. What an interesting idea. Yeah, and I just feel like, you know, it typifies that adage that sounds like such a cliche, but it drives home the fact that even one person can really make a big difference. Okay. Uh, another person making a difference in her own way. Uh, well, you, you have different categories and under the education category is a woman named Natalie Roy. And from what I know about this, she used to teach of uh, uh, Latin, just Latin. Of course, there's an emphasis uh, more in schools now on the so-called STEM, meaning uh, teaching more about technology and 
uh, incorporating more of that. So here's the Latin teacher having the sort of imperative to uh, expand what she's teaching. So what does she do? Well, Natalie Roy is a teacher at Glasgow Middle School and her transition- Glasgow Middle School is in Baton Rouge. Yes, thank you. Um, her transition was from teaching Latin to incorporating STEM and she came up with Roman technology, which is such a creative pivot. Of course, that's our word of the year. In case uh, you missed that, she, yes, she said Roman technology. <laughs> so some of the projects, what that means is some of the projects for her class have included things like building sundials, catapults, and many kilns. So she focuses clearly on uh, engineering in a lot of ways, so the E in STEM. Um, but I think it's just so intriguing that this is what she came up with because obviously the Romans were known for being very advanced technologically, maybe obviously not by our standards, but learning where this technology started is such a huge learning experience, I think, for young people, especially young people who have so much technology at their fingertips every single day and they've never lived without technology. So that is where her heart took her. And she says that she she loves it because it has allowed her to continue her study of the classical world and share it with this new generation of learners and of students. Well, great idea and you're right. So much of our architecture is influenced by the by the ancient Roman architecture and then developed from there. And so I can imagine a kid in junior high school, you know, having at least a sense of this, the fundamentals of it, with a with a head start. And if they pick up a little Latin along the way too, that doesn't hurt either. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. We could all probably uh, learn a little something from our Latin studies. Yeah. Now this next person is a guy with a lot of stories to him. I mean, I, I, I got a full disclosure and I know him personally, but, but he, um, He's been all over the news for the last year. And this is um, John Barry, uh, who's written several very, very important books. Uh, he wrote one a couple of years ago on the, the Spanish flu. And uh, that of course became very, very important this year because people was, were studying that book to say, well, what does this mean in terms of COVID? What can we learn about the Spanish flu thing? I think the Spanish flu is around the 19, right around the time of World War I and it spread worldwide. And, and, and so if you read about what happened during that period and the way government reacted to it, the way people reacted to it, I tell you, it really helped me in terms of a lot when COVID was starting, because one thing I got out of it was that first there was this fear, what if there's no end to this? What if this goes on forever? Mm -hmm. And yeah. at least his book was assuring by looking at past epidemics and pandemics that there is a point where they end at some point. Uh, right. And uh, and sometimes it's a little bit longer than, than thought, but, but it, it, you know, it doesn't help. But uh, but also the way that these things spread and everything. And in fact, the, the Spanish flu started, I think, in Kansas. Uh, it was in a military base, and, and I know this from him, from his from his book, a military base in Kansas. But then it being World War One time, it spread, and the first European newspaper to really write about it and publicize it was in Spain. <laughs> And so Spain got associated with that flu, hence the Spanish flu. Anyway, all that aside, it's an important book. But another book he, he wrote a few years before that was about the Great Flood of 1927, which was a really, really important book. 
and also had the same sort of influences like when we had Katrina, when we were facing a natural disaster, water-based disaster, how people respond to it, how government responds to it. And that's, that's really a very, very important book. So he's recognized from this, not necessarily because of those two books per se, but because he's also an activist on environmental issues. And Melanie, why don't you go ahead and explain this? Correct. It's um, probably a little bit surprising that we're honoring him for his conservation contributions as opposed to his immense writing contributions. And, you know, people the, the countrywide know him from his work in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, um, you know, obviously lots of interviews he's been doing about COVID. But he is very passionate about coastal restoration and environmental causes. He has served on both the Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority. He has um, also worked just with a lot of different entities on the technical problem, the money problem, the rising sea level problem, and has just been integral in this particular uh, arena and his book, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America was the a recipient recently of the 21st Annual Louisiana Writer Award. He has really risen a lot of awareness about this cause that is so dear and dire to Louisianians. And we thought that apart from his, or maybe in addition to his accomplishments as a writer, that this really bared um, some attention so we put him in our in our group this year. Yeah. Again, just a very important person. I urge anybody um, who hasn't seen the books yet to, to get it. Um, both of them, the book about the flood and the book about the, uh, the Spanish flu are just really, really major influences. Just a quick side story about the, uh, the one about the, uh, the great flood. He had a, a section in there that just shocked a lot of people and a lot of people talked about it and saying that in 1927, around April that year, as the, uh, the Mississippi was building up and it was getting to the flooding stage all up and down the river. So there's a, a major disaster and, and New Orleans is a target for it. That he told this story about a group of people. Now Plaquemines Parish at the time was mostly just empty land. It wasn't developed at all. But anyway, they got some land in Plaquemines Parish next to the levee and then they blew it up. They dynamited it to open that up so that the water would go through Plaquemines Parish and thereby saving New Orleans, which was a population center. And a lot of financial interests in New Orleans were, um, you know, in favor of it. Other people said, well, you shouldn't do this, but anyway, it happened. And that became really the talk of the book. A lot of people mentioned that. And so that story is true. But when Katrina happened, and when people started talking about Katrina, it became part of the lore about Katrina. And it was actually a woman who went to Congress and said that in response to Katrina, that they blew down, they blew up the levees in Plaquemines Parish to save New Orleans. And that never happened, okay, it never happened. Yeah. But people just believed because that story went around so much and so much, you know, and of course, it's not his fault, he just told the story. But at least, uh, I think finally it got straightened out. But anyway, that just showed you the impact of it. Anyway, uh, important book and an important guy. Um, so, and a Louisiana of the year. All right, under the art category, a guy with an interesting story to tell, man, I believe he's uh, from Shreveport, Morris Taft Thomas. 
Yes, Morris Taft Thomas has a very distinguished career. He is a nationally celebrated painter and sculptor. He's also a poet and a writer. Um, so we really could just honor him for the arts, not just art. He's a retired school teacher, principal and university professor. And he, while he was born in um, New Orleans in 1935, he later went to Baton Rouge. He studied at Southern University Lab School. And he was very impacted by the Southern University art professor, Frank Hayden, who influenced him very deeply. He ended up, Thomas ended up getting um, his master's of art history from Northwestern State University in Natchitoches. And he has done so much in his many, many years as a teacher and as an artist. And ultimately after retiring, he returned full-time to his first love, which he says is art. And some people might know him for his work having created an ornament for the White House Christmas tree during George W. Bush's presidency. And he um, also received the Louisiana Governor, Governor's Arts Award in 2008. Uh, in 2020, he got the Alexandria Museum of Art People's Choice Award. And he has just turned his second career into quite the, um, the accomplishment that you, I guess, you know, hope to see when you retire. And um, the article mentions that the theme that he's developed recently, which I think is uh, um, pretty interesting. Let, let me try to, to quote it. Um, he's explored various sub uh, subjects. His most recent paintings are portraits of local homeless people. Um, living under overpasses and in makeshift camps. In quoting him, he says, maybe people will look at them in a different way and have compassion. I think it's a great idea. That's, uh, so it's uh, some touching work. So Morris Taft Thomas. I wonder, is there anywhere in the, uh, I wonder if there's any place you can pinpoint to, to go and see it. But anyway, just look him up and I'm sure you'll find him. And then uh, Melanie, uh, the last one on our list, or not, not necessarily just the way it falls out in the order, this is kind of a touching, uh, we always have a, a nursing category. And this is a, I think it's an interesting story, one because of her compassion, but also what happened, how she decided to become a nurse. You wanna go ahead and talk about that? Yes, yeah, so um, Jen Garland is the Louisiana Registered Nurse of the Year for 2020 which is uh, an honor given by the Louisiana State Nurses Association. And she has been on the front lines of the COVID fight and risks very bravely her own health in the care of others. And part of her inspiration or really maybe her entire inspiration for becoming a nurse was that she suffered a miscarriage of her first child um, shortly after Hurricane Katrina. And she says in our interview, she, this is a quote, she says, I remember feeling so vulnerable and defeated, but at the same time, looking up to these strong individuals who worked hard, advocated for me as their patient and quietly inspired me to change my life without even knowing the impact they were having at the time. She ended up going to nursing school and has spent her entire career connected to emergency medicine in some capacity for that reason. She's been a staff nurse, a charge nurse, a preceptor, a clinical educator, a mentor, a, fi a flight nurse, chief flight nurse, and operations coordinator. 
and she's about to start a new job as the director of oncology at University Medical Center here in New Orleans. Well, what an impressive career. With a moving story, you know, there has been over the last several years, and I assume it's still the case, a, a shortage of nurses. And so to get any people who are to be nurses, but they have this kind of commitment is a wonderful thing. And yeah, anybody that's been in the hospital situation knows just how, how important the nurse can be in terms of just providing assurance uh, in, in, in what's uh, uh, an uncomfortable situation for a lot of people. Well, Melly, this is a, a very impressive list. Uh, good work. Um, Thank you. By the way, these people were uh, selected by the editorial staff, which would essentially be you and the uh, and the people you've advised. It's all, uh, it's pure editorial. There's no deals behind it. And, and y'all, uh, you got the advice from some of the freelancers that, and then from there, you just uh, try to determine uh, the list. Yes, and we also receive a, a nomination sometimes from our readers, which we always appreciate because they often put somebody on our radar that we may not have known about. So thank you to our readers for some of their suggestions. Um, and we're just always so impressed. I mean, reading this list and reading the bios of these accomplished individuals is nothing short of inspiring. And so much of what all of them do is about passion and compassion for their fellow human beings. You know, no matter what area they're in, they're all driven by wanting to do good and wanting to make Louisiana or the world a better place, which we think is something that um, we should all aspire to do. And they definitely give us the inspiration for it. Let me mention, if you get this copy of, of uh, this magazine, it's, it's the current issue, uh, Louisiana's of the Year issue. After you read this, you turn the next page and there's a section called Travel Resolutions, which I'm, I'm really pleased with this because I know commitment of the magazine made last year in 2020 was to really try to take the lead in, in, in emphasizing staycations in, in Louisiana in places that you could go. And uh, as you point out in the introductory paragraph that we're continuing the mission in the 2021 about, and so this is all, it's called travel resolutions. And we have a, you, you have our ace travel writer, uh, Sherry Cohen. And so she looks at destinations uh, around the state where you can still go to and travel. And please, we encourage everyone, uh, travel around Louisiana as much as you can. And if you wanna, you know, if you're missing Europe or if you're missing the Caribbean, you, you can get touches of Europe, you can get touches of the Caribbean and in touches of just about anywhere in the world in, uh, in Louisiana. So please support the state on this. And there's a great, a great story on that. So anything else we should talk about, Melanie? I would love to tell listeners um, that we have some wonderful extra interviews online with all of our Louisianians of the year. So if you would like to watch and listen to what they have to say about what they do and about the honor, um, please visit louisianalife.com and check out those videos. And again, let me mention, if you wanna, if you're interested in subscribing to the magazine, area code 504-828-1380, uh, six times a year, $10 uh, uh, for year. And, Love to have you join us. Anyway, Melanie, thank you very much. Great job explaining all this. Interesting people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Errol and Kelly. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. 
Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.